listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We're going through a series in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to continue that this morning, and we're calling this series Chosen Sojourners. There's really three themes that Peter keeps hitting over and over and over again. If you've been with us for all, all six weeks, I think this is week number seven now, you probably know these themes by now, right? First one is Jesus is our living hope. Jesus is alive. He is well. He is working for us and through us and in us. He's our living hope. Secondly, in this world as we know it right now, this present life, there is still suffering because the way God created the world was good, but sin entered into the world and cursed this creation, and we're all dealing with the consequences of sin in our own lives, in other people's lives. All is not as it, is sh- as it should be, but that's not how it will end either because Future glory is awaiting all who know Jesus. So over and over again, we're seeing how you can have a new identity in Jesus Christ, how you have a new purpose and passion for living through our Savior, our living hope, Jesus Christ. And we're seeing seeing that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're here for a purpose, though, to glorify God and to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light. Now, this morning, we're going to take all of that, and we're going to get very personal this morning. I'm calling this message Contrary to the Contrarian, because everyone in this room, from youngest to the oldest, is dealing with the world that is contrary to God's will. We are all facing selfish people who act Selfishly, And to varying degrees, we have all felt the effects of just not knowing how to handle someone who is way out of line. So we live in a world full of condemnation. And as much as people don't like to talk about it, we live in a world of pain, which is, as I said, contrary to, way, to the way God intended this world to be when he created it and called it good. Future glory is coming. But in the meantime, there is present suffering. And in the last verse of our passage today is, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. And it really caps off everything that we're going to cover this morning. So if you want to look at that verse, we're going to go backwards this morning. We're going to start right there in verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So yes, the world is full of people who are living their life in contradiction to the way God wants them to live their life. And without fail, the fruit of that every single time is pain and suffering. Eventually, they're going to bring pain upon themselves and even pain that they inflict on others. And I have seen a lot of this firsthand or secondhand over the last couple months, even in my own life. There are people who have grown so spiritually cold that they lose natural affection even for their own children. Even mothers losing that natural affection for their own children. There are people who've held on to pain for so long 
that their bitterness has warped their thinking. And they are a shell of themselves. And, and everything is consumed with negativity. And they almost want other people to suffer and just watch the world burn because they're in so much pain. It's a really sad place to be and to see that. There are people who have made so many short-sighted decisions, so many selfish, get-rich-quick choices or, or whatever it is, that, that they have actually put themselves in a very, very bad spot. And there's people who love them, who stick their neck out for them to try to help them. And then those very people turn on the one person who loves them and blames them for all their problems instead of taking it upon themselves. And if you're wondering where I got those three examples from, it's because I have names in my, in my mind right now of people that I know and love who are doing those things. Many of you work with people like that. Some of you live with people like that. Honestly, some of you are people like that right now. And I don't know your full story. I know a lot of you. I love the fact that our church is a tight-knit church. We know one another, and we walk with one another and point each other to Christ. And I, I know a lot of you are dealing with effects, and you're dealing with elements of what we just discussed. So I know this is a sensitive topic. I, I can feel it just, just by bringing that up. We've waded into a very heavy thing here. But Jesus is our living hope. And there's good news when you turn to the Bible. In Christ, you do not have to stay, stay stuck in that mental anguish. You don't have to stay there. You have to deal with it, and that's what we're going to see in the passage this morning. But through Christ, you can rise above it all. So what can you do when there's a family member that you can't control making horrible decisions that affect you, and at the same time, they're trying to manipulate you? What can you do when you were put in a position that you did not ask to be put into and people around you are making your life a living H-E double hockey sticks, all right? In a world that is often upside down from the way God intended it to be, this passage today is about how you can be contrary to the contrarian. How you can be the one who stands out with the loving light of Jesus Christ and be the kind of person that doesn't make logical sense. Someone who acts out of love instead of reacts defensively. Blessing others in a world of condemnation. So how on earth can you be that kind of person where pain and strife and bitterness rolls off your shoulders and you look forward undaunted Maybe that sounds completely unrealistic. And you're, you're struggling just to, to handle the emotional baggage that your pain is bringing you right now. Well, whenever your feelings are torn and your emotions are spent, the only thing you can do in that situation is align your heart and your mind with the truth of God's word. You can't let your emotions just go rogue and your feelings just dominate, right? You have to align those with truth of what God says about you, what God says about the situation. And that's what we're going to do right now. So let's read what Peter has to say about it, starting right where we left off last week in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, 
and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for reviling. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So to start off this morning, there's a, there's a phrase here that is really the hinge phrase in all five of these verses that I just read. And it's in verse 10. For whoever desire, desires to love life and see good days. Is that, does that sound like you this morning? Of course, right? But what does that really mean? Well, the world tells us that we live the good life by pursuing whatever feels good, right? You want that new truck? Either work hard to get it or just put it on the credit card, man. Like, let's just get this thing right now. If it feels good, do it. Can't decide between these three pairs of shoes at the store? Well, just buy all three. It's going to make you feel good. That's the world's version of the good life. Only thing is that never really pans out in the end, right? Things always come up. It never, it never quite works out and settles the way we want it to settle. But everyone wants the good life. And it's just that if you don't know Jesus, your version of the good life is either temporary relief, it's either a gimmick, or it's a sham. It will never work out for you in the end. And if you stop and think about the number of celebrities, whether it's musicians or actors, actresses, uh, people in literature who write stories, it doesn't matter. Famous celebrities who seemingly had it all that ended their life prematurely. It's semi-depressing when you stop and think about that. And that's not even counting all the people who, who live in the city of broken dreams, right? They live in L.A. and they're just going about their life because it didn't pan out the way they wanted it to pan out. Or even the people who made it to the top, the rare ones that made it, and they still don't love their life. This, in this key phrase, whoever desires to love life, the word there in the Greek is zoe. And there's, there's two Greek words for life, right? There's bios, which just means like living and breathing. It's, it's the biological term, not, not dead. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Zoe here. And that is the stuff that means, or the word that means just the richness and the fullness of life. To really enjoy the full capacity of what God has to offer in life. That's the word used here. So those who desire to love life and all the potential goodness, the fulfillment that life contains... And, he adds here, to see good days. Not empty, vain, useless, unfulfilling days, but days that are meaningful, days that are beneficial, days that are productive, that are, that are satisfying, and then that accomplish a purpose. Days that matter for eternity. Those of you who want to love the fullness of life and enjoy those kind of days, here's the formula. We just read it. And there's three points today. 
Hold your tongue from evil and from speaking evil. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's our outline this morning. And it's really that simple. You have to tune out the hate. You want to do that? You want to uh, not let those hurtful people live rent-free in your head? You want to bless others in a world of condemnation and truly love life and see good days? Despite the fallen nature and, and the bitterness and the pain that's all around you? Well, hold your tongue from speaking evil, turn away from evil and do good, and seek peace and pursue it. And I don't often preach a sermon this way where I just give the outline all three points on the front end. Happens every once in a while, but there's nothing to hide here. We've read the passage, and this is the formula. But here's where this gets really interesting, and I need you to follow me on this. Because you can look at that, and you can say, well, David, of course, right? Gun to your head, at the end of the day, everyone knows it's a good idea to refrain from speaking evil. Yeah, that's, that's not a new revelation, it's not a shocker to be in church and hear the pastor read the Bible and say, turn away from evil and do good. I mean, you can hear that in an annoying claymation kids movie, right? They have the same message. You can hear that in a, in a TED talk at your community college. Pursue peace and, and pursue it? Who in their right mind wouldn't want that or disagree with that? So if you just isolate these three points that Peter gives and you put them in a vacuum and you add your definitions to them, well, then you have moral therapeutic deism. You just have a big old, well, no, duh, right? So you can't miss the meat of what Peter is saying by just looking at the surface level of what the really nice people or the influencers say about this. Let's actually truly dive in to what Peter says because he's unpacking this, and he's giving us five character traits that are embedded into all three of these points. The way you live out these three points is by adding these five character traits that Peter gives us on the front end. So here we go. We're going to work through them one at a time, pointing out all along the way how they play into the three main points. So what is the first one there in verse 8? Unity of mind. Unity of mind is where we're going to begin. And that's literally two Greek words in the original, phronos and homo, which literally means to think the same. This is all also called being harmonious in a lot of translations, to be like-minded and not be in perpetual conflict. Now, to have unity of mind, this does not mean that you have to agree with everyone at all times. It doesn't mean you have to put yourself in a position to be the doormat and, and take abuse just because you, you got to keep the unity. There's going to be times where you need space to heal. There's going to be people who are unhealthy and you need to step away from. Those are biblical elements that are not in contradiction to this at all. And sadly, it can even be Christians sometimes that, that want to eradicate their own guilt, that are going to cry for unity in a manipulative way. That does happen. Because one aspect of manipulation is that the person doing the hurting is trying to make the victim feel guilty for how they feel about what they did. So unity doesn't mean you have to agree on everything that you can never disagree. There are times when you have to agree to disagree. And, you know, 
We're going to move on from this in a second here, but you see this in Scripture. Most notably, you see it in Acts 15 with, with, uh, with Paul and Barnabas, right? They had a disagreement. It was a sharp disagreement, and they actually parted ways for a while. They kept doing their ministry that, that the Lord had called them to do, but they didn't actually do it hand in hand. And we won't always agree with the particulars down here while we all see through a glass dimly. But unity of mind is so much beyond that. It's, it's this attitude that you're going to do your part to live harmoniously. And sometimes that means you're going to hold your tongue. Sometimes that means you're going to wait to have that tough conversation when the person is ready to listen. But the point here is your attitude is I'm not seeking to get my way. I'm not seeking to divide and conquer. I'm not causing the disruption. I'm going to purposefully be a peacemaker and seek for harmony. I'm going to try to dissolve the conflict through love. So we have hold your tongue from speaking evil, turn away from doing good, turn away from evil and do good, pursue peace and seek that. One of the phrases that that jumped off the page to me when I was reading this passage that I, that I really thought about all week was the fact that he says, seek peace and pursue it. You know, this is, this is saying we seek it with all of our might. We're seeking for tranquility and unity. We run away from unnecessary conflict. And then Peter like doubles down and emphasizes it even more, pursue it. And it's the idea of just going on a hunt. You are actually hunting it down aggressively, persistently, make an effort to be a peacemaker. And unity has always been prized in the church from, from the very, very, very onset. In John 17, Jesus prayed in that, in that great high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed that we would have unity. In Philippians 4, um, where Yodia and Syntyche were having a falling out in the church, and they basically split up in two camps. One camp was against the other. You remember what Paul said to them? I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Set your differences aside, and let's focus on the main thing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Agree in the Lord and the, the ministry of the gospel that you have had, the influence that you have had in this church. It means that we're not going to be bitter and hold on to things because there's a calling on my life that is so much bigger than this. And my calling is to bring glory to God and to proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his light. That's how you bless others and live the good life in a world of condemnation. That's the very first piece. The next one is sympathy. And I have to say, this is, of all of these in this list, I was, I was thinking about it and just meditating on it. I think sympathy is probably the one that I struggle with the most, with my own personality. It doesn't really come second nature to me. I, I am considerate. I, I naturally want to extend grace to people, give people the benefit of the doubt. But this is the one that I need the most work on. Because sympathy is when you suffer with someone else. You know, if I don't check my heart and I let pride creep in, I can just look at somebody else and be like, that was a really stupid decision, and you need to just suffer for it, okay? Like, you made your bed, sleep in it. You know, that, that's, 
the flesh of, of, of David Rudy speaking right there. That's not sympathy. Sympathy is when you actually care about the pain that that person's going through and you put your arm around their shoulder and you walk with them as much as you can out of that painful situation. To put it simply, we're to be ready to share in the sufferings of others in the church, in our family, even outside of the church. We should be known as sympathetic people. And yet it's tragic that very often the church pulls back, pulls back, pulls back, you know, until we become this like highly defined like bubble mentality with this ingrown subculture that sits in condemnation to the world and their pain and their suffering around us. And we have little, if any, sympathy for what they're going through. That's not the way God has, has, has taught us to live our lives as people who know Jesus and who are, who are representing Jesus. We should be known as the sympathetic people. The world is unforgiving. They're ready to cancel. They're ready to condemn others to make themselves feel better about themselves. We should be living contrary to that. We must understand the fallenness of humanity and find sympathy in our hearts. We should be marked and lived just like our Savior Jesus Christ who had sympathy for the lost. He had sympathy for you and me before we were lost. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we should share in the feelings of others, join in their sorrow. We should be known as not being indifferent to the world, not as a critic of the world, not as people who damn other people, but as people who are sensitive to the pain of the lost, sensitive to the anxieties of the lost, and sensitive to the tender heart and tenderheartedness, having a tender heart towards their greatest need, which is salvation. This is at the core of handling hurtful people right here. Right here. You just have to go deeper than the surface level. Because hurt people hurt people, right? So we have to understand that about them, and we have to actually step into that sometimes. We can't just keep them at arm's length. Don't do the same thing for them and just heap condemnation on them. Turn the other cheek. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. This is what Jesus taught over and over again. And that is truly living contrary to the contrarian. If you adapt that mindset, it's actually going to free you up to turn away from evil and do good which is the very next way that you bless others and live the good life in a world of condemnation. It's brotherly love. Now, whenever I think of brotherly love myself, just probably because I'm a football fan and I've grown up with football, I can't help but think of the city of Philadelphia and their sports fans. Yeah, I know we have some, we have some Eagles and, and Phillies fans, you know, 76ers fans in the room. No offense to any of you, seriously. But, uh, and I think if you're a true Philadelphia fan, you know this. Hopefully you've been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ and you have a new heart now. And you're not like the rest of the Philadelphia crowd and the Boo Birds. And, I mean, because they are the most ruthless 
nasty fan base probably at all of American sports, right? They're, the, they're literally contrary to what their, their name is. They're supposed to be the city of brotherly love, and they are the exact opposite of that. If you go to any Philadelphia sports game or even watch it on TV, you can feel it. I mean, they, they will go for blood if, if, if they feel threatened at all. Like, they are, they are angry at your existence. Like, that's the city of Philadelphia, and that's the opposite of what true Philadelphia really is. Brotherly love, what is it? Is it just loving your brother? Is, that sim- is it that simple? Not exactly. The original word conveys the extension of natural affection that is associated with close family toward a greater community of people that you rub shoulders with. So yes, it's the opposite of a Philly sports fan, but brotherly love is treating people, even people who aren't your brother or sister, like a brother or sister. That's brotherly love. That's Philadelphia. And I mean, I know depending on who you're, who you're living with in close proximity, like that can be really hard, even depending on who your brother is. Sometimes, some of us have brothers. I don't have a brother. Some of us have brothers who are like, oh, wow, this kind of doesn't really connect with my, with my relationship with my brother, unfortunately. But brotherly love is simply you care about that person, you love a person with the same affection that you have for your close family. Carrying that affection into more and more relationships where you help your coworker with a problem. You help a person in your life group, you know, move or, or, or figure, out a, figure out a situation. Genuinely just being a person who sacrifices in an unselfish way to people beyond your family. That is Philadelphia brotherly love. So when you are, are loving in an unselfish way, with people who don't owe you anything, but you're treating them like a brother just because you are filled with the love of Christ, that speaks loudly. With a megaphone. Whoa, there's something different about this person. So we're to be harmonious. We're to be sympathetic people who understand the pain and the fallenness um, of of the world around us. We're to be loving people who in an unselfish way take the shirt off our back. And there's only... And there's really only one way to do that, and it's by looking to Jesus Christ. And it goes hand in hand with the next two mindsets. It goes beautifully with these last two. Having a tender heart and a humble mind. Having a tender heart means to be compassionate. And again, this is another one for the tough guys in the room. Like, it's, it's, not, our first, it's not our first gut instinct, is it? But you look at Jesus Christ, who was a, a king, who, who actually did not mess around with, with the Pharisees at all. He called sin, sin. He called things out. Like, he was a carpenter. He knew how to work with his hands. He was a man's man. But Jesus also, at the same time, when he lifted his eyes and looked out over the multitudes, the Gospel of John tells us he was filled with compassion. Jesus had a tender heart. And there's only one way that you can really have compassion. I know some of the ladies in the room, some people in the room, like you are just born with it. Bless your heart, I love you. And I, I, love, I love the fact that some people are like that, right? For some of us, we struggle with that and it's not naturally our go-to. The only way you can truly have compassion, like Jesus had compassion, is to look at the compassion that Jesus showed you. 
Look what he did for you when he went to the cross, suffered, bled, and died on your behalf. If you're not looking to Jesus that way, you're not going to have compassion to other people. You're not going to have a tender heart. Especially if you're focusing on what other people are doing to you, right? You're never going to stay compassionate. If you're focused on what other people are doing to you, you're going to be stuck in that. You're going to be frustrated with that. So the only way out of that is to get your focus and your gaze off of other people's problems, off of what they're doing, and onto what Jesus has already done. What has Jesus done for you? What is he calling to you, calling for you to be? That's the only way you find compassion in your heart for the nasty people who are hurting you in your life. It's by remembering Jesus loved me, he saved me, he made me new, and he could even be using me to show this person the very same thing that I've seen and witnessed and heard in my own life. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. It all comes back to looking to Jesus Christ. It's also how you stay humble. You aren't some special person who figured it all out. You have been chosen. You are redeemed because of the grace of God that he chose you when you were running the other direction. He suffered and bled and died. He showed you mercy. He sent his son to die in your place. You deserve death and separation from God. Jesus took your condemnation upon himself. He bore the wrath so you would not have to be punished and separated from God. Jesus took that punishment. When you think about what he did for you on the cross, that is humbling. That's how you keep this mindset of having a humble spirit is because you realize it wasn't me and my own good works that did this. I'm not a special person. I mean, you're, you're loved by God. You're created in his image. In that sense, everyone is special because everyone is an image bearer of God. We should value all human life. Yes, you are special, but you're not spe more special than anyone else. You, you are a chosen sojourner is what you are, living this life right now in the present suffering for the glory of God to point others to the way. The true motivation to do all of this comes from Jesus Christ. And I cannot emphasize that enough. Turn to Philippians 2, because you see this every time it comes up in Scripture. And I want to read this passage, because Philippians 2 uh, correlates perfectly. It just complements beautifully what we're seeing here. And it's another passage that talks about this. We are going to see this in this passage. We're just not getting to this verse today. 1 Peter chapter 3, um, later on down, I think it's verse 19, talks about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But for now, let's look at Philippians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're not in tune with the gospel and focused on what Jesus has done for you, you can never do all of these character traits, these five character traits on your own. It just won't happen. Look back at chapter 3, verse 9 again in, in 1 Peter. Do not repay reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What is this saying? It's saying that people around you can and will be nasty. You're going to have people that are close to you mistreat you. You're going to have bosses that neglect you and, and use you. You're going to have people attempt to manipulate you and walk all over you. But here's the alternative. You can get bitter and defensive about that, or you can, on the contrary, bless. You have a higher calling to live above all that. And what does it really mean to bless? If you want to bless someone when they insult you, instead, love them. Speak kindly to them. Seek to demonstrate love by an act of service. Pray for their salvation or their spiritual growth if they're already saved. And instead of speaking negatively about them, either don't say anything at all or just pray for them and, and find something nice to say. You can always find something nice to say, I think, usually. Right? Can't you usually figure that out? If there's just nothing else to say, just walk away. Uh, I was actually reading in the Bible this week, and this wasn't even connected to my sermon, but in Acts chapter 24. Uh, and there was something that I caught that I think ironically goes right along with this idea. And this is really David speaking right now, so, so disclaimer. Um, this is one of my theories that I came up with, and, and you can agree or disagree. I, I do not care. But in Acts 24, okay, um, Peter is going before Felix, and Tertullus is this, this Jewish uh, master of the law, right? And he's trying to accuse Accuse Paul. Did I say? Did I say Peter? I meant. I meant Paul. Well, if whatever I said. But Paul is before. <laughs> he's before Felix, and you get this really funny exchange um, in Acts 24, where where this where this guy either he's trying to butter up Felix. I don't really know what he says, but he's like, um, through you, we enjoy much peace, and and he's like most excellent Felix, and then he kind of like doesn't know what to say. Um, reforms are being made through you. Like, it's like, wow, you couldn't say anything else after most excellent Felix besides the general, like, reforms are being made. <laughs> I can't think of anything specific that you've done this great, but reforms are being made. To you, I present Paul. Here's this bad guy. That's, that's what he did. But he found something nice to say. When you are dealing with people who are horrible and people who don't have your best, best interest in mind, the best thing you can do is not just be defensive, but to go on offense. 
and to love them and to say something kind about them. Think of a person who's mistreating you right now. Do they have any good character traits? They probably do. Focus on that. That's how you bless people. Your goal shouldn't be just to survive and hang in there. Your goal should be to actually bless those who are persecuting you. That's Peter's message here in this entire letter. So as we close, uh, what is this passage teaching you right now? So I covered a lot. I covered five different character traits. We have these three points. What is the Holy Spirit convicting you of? I want you to take some time and personalize that for a minute. What is in this for you? Maybe it's that you cannot change people in and of yourself. You can influence people, right? especially when they're young, which is why it's so important that we take the time to invest in kids because that really will shape them for, for the entirety of their lives. But if we're talking about you're dealing with somebody who is a coworker and they're horrible, or you're talking about somebody who's really annoying and frustrating you, somebody who's trying to manipulate you, you can't change that person, that adult. You can't. You can talk to God about it. You can do your best but you can't change them. A lot of times people are not going to change unless they want to change. And they can't be helped unless they want to be helped. Maybe it's something else. Maybe for some of you who are in the thick of it right now, you just don't, you just don't know, you don't know how to get your mind off of the problem. And for you, I would encourage you and just say, don't worry about what you can't change. Focus on what you can change. Just focus on what you are controlling in your own life and leave that peace that's over here with that person, leave that in the hands of God, okay? Focus on what you can change, not what you, not what you can't control. Control what you can control and let go of what you can't control. And by letting go, I mean leaving it in the hands of God. Maybe there's something else the Lord is speaking to you. Maybe there's one of these five character traits that you've just ignored and kind of put off. This is a very convicting passage. It's been very convicting to me to let things roll off, to, to just go about things with a, with a spirit of unity and, and humbleness. Like, I don't have it all figured out. There's things that I'm not seeing. Try to put yourself in the other person's shoes to see their perspective. When you do that, you can point them to Christ. There's so much freedom in knowing that you don't have to insert yourself into someone's life and fix all their problems. Jesus will do that. You walk humbly with your God and you leave the heavy lifting up to the one who is able to make all things new. And there's only one person who can do that. Jesus is the one who is changing you and he's the one that we must look to to find peace and rest and the motivation to love. I mentioned that this passage talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, a, passage that, a verse that we'll get to next week. It's here too, okay? 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So where do you find all these, all these virtues rolled into one? Jesus Christ. Who is the greatest living peacemaker? Say it with me. Jesus Christ. Who is the ultimate, true sympathizer? Jesus Christ. Who humbled himself even to the point of death for you so that you could find peace, so you could find rest, so that you don't have to live with the shackles of pain and suffering in your mind and deal with all these things forever. Who did that? Jesus Christ. Stand up with me, church. Jesus was meek and lowly of heart. Jesus loved the unlovely with compassion. He drew forth of his power to heal and restore, and he's done that for us if you have confessed your sin. And if you know him as your savior, you're now a child of God, you've received forgiveness of your sin, then now you are a person who does not have to just be bogged down by the hate of this world and the confusion and the pain, but you can just no longer let that hold you back and you can look forward by looking up and pointing others to Jesus Christ. have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.